Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We've been reading through the book of Colossians, and we're going to read, uh, this is a letter by Paul to the church, actually to a church he's never been, he's never visited, and um, the verses we're going to read are actually pretty famous in Paul's kind of literature because in the middle of a letter, he just breaks out into poetry. And you feel his kind of heart elevate and him get excited about who Jesus is. Um, so that's what we're going to read, and then we'll consider it. So this is from Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Speaking about Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister." Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your Word, and we hear your servant Paul write this poem about you. And we want to get in on the glory of that, or at least get in on understanding the exalted language he has to say about you. But there's a lot of clutter in our minds and our hearts. So, Father God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work inside of us as we consider your word and teach us about who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, When we moved here seven years ago, I had a good friend who worked at Facebook and uh, invited me over there for lunch early on, right when we moved here. And as I was leaving lunch that day, he said, Hey, man, anytime you want to eat lunch at Facebook... Just let me know. Which, to his kind of, uh, well, what he didn't know, and maybe what I didn't know at the time, was how often I wound up wanting to eat lunch at Facebook because the best barbecue in Northern California is actually on Facebook's campus. Has anybody been there? Anybody? It's outstanding, right? Okay, anyways... So, Jeff allowed me to go to Facebook over and over and over again, sometimes more than once a week. And um, I remember the first time that I saw Mark Zuckerberg there. And if you know, uh, it's kind of one of these open workspace um, kind of places where you can see everyone. And at that point in time, he was like 28, 29. At that point in time, he was worth about $30 billion, which is about half of what he's worth now. Uh, nonetheless, his place and culture and, in, and, and on, on a kind of a global scale was just as significant as it is today. Um, but here's what I... Jeff just pointed him out to me. He was like not this far away from me and Andrew. 
And this is what I remember about laying eyes on Mark Zuckerberg for the first time. And it was namely that I didn't notice him at all. That he was 15 feet away and he was wearing jeans and a t-shirt and New Balance shoes. He didn't even have shoes as cool as my new (laughs) shoes. Right? You'd at least expect something like that. I just want to draw attention to my new shoes. (laughs) He just looked like an unkempt 29-year-old coder. He didn't look like someone that had $30 billion and is one of the most influential people directing global culture and communication. And so here's the question. Because I had no capacity, didn't have the right lens or the understanding to recognize supremacy and power, did that mean he didn't have supremacy and power? No. He absolutely was who he was, regardless of the fact that I couldn't recognize it. Paul, in his poem, Exalting Jesus, is helping us recalibrate our ability to perceive supremacy and power. Because if you're a Christian, or if you're, if you're kind of wrestling with a Christian identity, uh, do you feel like Jesus is enough for you today? Do you feel like Jesus is relevant? Do you feel like Jesus is the supreme being that defines all of your existence? We wrestle with this, don't we? We wrestle with compartmentalizing him. He's helpful in some kind of wishful thinking areas and some therapeutic, therapeutic aids in which I decide I'm going to pray and kind of believe in Jesus. He's a little help in a couple of little categories of my life, but for the bulk of our day and for the bulk of our interactions, the spheres that we live in, he feels irrelevant. The letter to the church of Colossae is all about Paul addressing a false teaching in that church at the time that said, yes, Jesus is good, yes, he's a big deal, but there's a lot of other stuff in addition to Jesus that you need. Jesus is just not enough. And what Paul is doing here is he's helping us recalibrate our ability to see glory and power because we actually don't know how to identify those things when they're right in front of us. If you're not a Christian, if you're, if you're more skeptical, the challenge is actually not that dissimilar. It's still asking the, and, and proposing the question to you, who is Jesus? Is he relevant? And I would submit to you some, a question that's actually helpful for all of us. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Maybe you've heard this before. And he talks about how we have to deal with the person of Jesus and kind of the only sincere and logical way is to deal with with the person of Jesus. This is what he says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, namely, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg. I love that line. Or he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that conclusion open to us. The only truly irrational thing is to have a tepid response to Jesus. That's the only thing that doesn't make sense that we can all agree on. So what I want to talk about tonight, two points, is talk about the way Jesus talks about, or sorry, talk about the way Paul talks about Jesus' power and how he uses it. His power 
and His purpose. So first, His power. And this is really talking about who Jesus is. In the poem, Paul exalts Jesus. And then when he does it, he challenges our understanding and expectations, Christian or not, believer or not, of what we expect God to be like. And the fact that we find Jesus underwhelming might not be because there's something wrong with Jesus, but actually because the flaw lies within us. We don't know how to identify true glory when it's right in front of us. If you're colorblind or know someone's colorblind, guess what? They can't see green. That doesn't make this not green. In some ways, we're glory blind. If we can't see glory, that doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, I, 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 Heather and I were talking about this the other night. I can't identify the difference between a $3 bottle of wine and a $300 bottle of wine. Probably if y'all tried to tell me you could, I wouldn't believe you. But is that because there's a problem with the wine or with me? The problem's with me. And when a sommelier begins to educate me on a $300 bottle of wine and walk me through sipping and tasting a $300 bottle of wine, I can begin to experience and taste the difference. But here's the thing. The wine never changed. But my ability to perceive its glory did. Paul invites us into this poem to educate us on glory and the supremacy of Jesus so that our eyes and hearts are recalibrated to perceive true glory and supremacy. So how does he begin? Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The Greek word for image is icon, the English word icon. And it doesn't mean image the way that we sometimes mean it or use it, like a copy or a picture of something. It actually means he is the actual, concrete, visible expression of God. Jesus affirms this in his teaching. These are the kind of statements C.S. Lewis is referring to when he tells the disciples in John 14, if you have seen me, you've seen God. The way that you actually see, actually lay eyes on or consider the character of the invisible God is to look at Jesus. Paul says in verse 19, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Not some or some things like God or some characteristics similar to God, but he says all the fullness of God is in Jesus. When Paul says he's the firstborn of creation, that term doesn't mean birth order, it means significance. It's used elsewhere in Scripture in Psalm 89. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's a term of preeminence. And what we feel, right, I feel it as well, is really? Right? Because we expect glory to be something else than a 30-year-old Jewish guy in the first century who walked around, wasn't at the center of any significant uh, center of power, and was actually killed when he was 33. And so our response is like, really? Really? Because what we expect when we hear the words glory and supremacy is shoes like this, right? Maybe, (laughs) sorry, it's not in the notes. I'm just proud of my shoes. Uh, (coughs) Shiny lights, That's all y'all are going to take away. It's okay. Shiny lights, loud sounds, intimidation, right? Big biceps, expensive clothes, big houses. That's glory. That's supremacy. Y'all, that's silly. And that's thin. And to believe that it's glory and supremacy is pathetic and sad. And a sign of insecurity, actually. 
What were, have y'all seen Braveheart? Please tell me you've seen Braveheart. Okay, good. If we're not, we were going to watch it at a large group next week. Maybe we should anyways. <laughs> it's about this, this Scottish rebel fighting for Scottish independence from England named William Wallace, if you haven't seen it. I'm a little bit gross, feel gross that I have to explain it to you. But um, there's this great sequence where William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, um, the Scottish army meets him for the first time. So there's this legend William Wallace, uh, and then they gather on one of the kind of the fields of battle, and they meet William Wallace for the first time. And do you all remember what the guy says to William Wallace? Anybody? He goes, you're not William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. You all remember this? Okay. And then Mel Gibson responds. He goes, yes, I've heard. He kills men by the hundreds. And if he were here, he'd consume the English bun with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. I'm just quoting. I'm just quoting a movie. I think we meet Jesus and we say, that's not God. God's nine feet tall. God's mean and loud and shiny. And the problem is not that Jesus fails to manifest God's glory. It's actually that we don't know how to see glory when it's right in front of us. It's called the doctrine of the incarnation. The fullness of God became man in Jesus. Calvin calls it God's great accommodation. When I, it's actually something we do every day. When I talk to my children, especially when they were smaller, when they were two or three, I understood this. Because when you talk to your children and they're two years old, you get down physically on their level and you talk in words they can understand, even though it's only a handful of words. And so it's all of me accommodating them on their level and in their language. That's who Jesus is, God's accommodation, His incarnation. So what does this mean for us? It means this, to learn about who God is, you have to look at Jesus. There is a lot of, I've said it, all of you have said it, I just feel like God is, fill in the blank, or I just think that God is, fill in the blank. We do a lot of that, don't we? So I've, I've recorded statistically every time I've heard that from students, and in 14 years of student ministry, you're wrong with whatever you fill in the blank 93% of the time, just so you know. And if you think, ha, 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 that's really funny, everybody does that but not me, then you're actually wrong 98% of the time. So those are not real stats, but you get my point. God has gone to great lengths to translate His character and glory into a language that, you can, that anyone can understand, the language of a human life. And so here's what that means. When you see Jesus weep over the death of a friend, you've learned something about God. When you see Jesus wash the feet of disciples, you've learned something about God. When you see Jesus sit down and get to know prostitutes and actually alienate the important and powerful people, you've learned something about God. When you see Jesus be with people with skin diseases and social and moral outcasts, you've learned something about God. When you see Jesus get angry at religious people who are really puffed up by the sense that they're better than others, you've learned something about God. When you see Jesus keep every part of the moral law, you've learned something about God. When you see Jesus stand silent in the face of false accusations, and his silence ends up leading him to death, you've learned something about the character of God. 
And when you begin to consider that, hopefully what you feel is like, that's a really complex character. Yes, we should expect God to be complex. It, one of the reasons it's complex is because he has this incredibly high view of the moral law and this incredible tender and mercy and grace for those who fail. The reality is, is that what's overwhelming about God is actually has nothing to do with how harsh we think God is. What's overwhelming about God is how tender He is. That's the hardest thing to believe. Because we foolishly think, okay, so people are nice, but God's really harsh. That's our first instinct. I'm nice, my friends are nice, but the God of the Bible is really, really harsh. Read the Gospels. It's the exact opposite. If you actually read them and then be honest about yourself, you'll find out it's actually His tenderness and mercy that offends you. The far more rational, the far more reasonable objection to the Christian God is that He's too good. No God would ever behave this way. No God would ever wash the feet of His friends. No God would ever spend all of his time with people with skin diseases. No God would go and hope to restore prostitutes. That doesn't make sense. Because we actually don't understand what real glory is. And we don't understand what real goodness is. Because he's far more glorious and far more good. Jesus teaches about who God is. One of the things that means is that he's the creator. This is Paul's next words. By him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. What's happening right here, if you're like, man, that's that's interesting stuff to think about, but that's all abstract. Paul gets really concrete right here, doesn't he? He makes God and Jesus really concrete right here. God's no longer an abstract idea in our heads of a cosmic distant grandfather that we hope hears the words we say to the corner of our bedroom. He's no longer abstract. Here's why. This is the way Abraham Kuyper, an old Dutch theologian, said it. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Windows, Jesus's. iPhones, Jesus's. Your jeans, Jesus's. The Grand Canyon, it's His. Fingernails, His. Hospitals, the Himalayas, the White House, the 49ers, Google, your dorm, burritos, North Korea, your books, the Pi Fi house, your brain, the quad. The past, the present, the future. It's all His. God got really concrete all of a sudden, didn't He? We used to ask our girls when they were literally, we said, try to touch or name something that doesn't belong to Jesus. And it was a fun game to play because they couldn't come up with anything. If you're not a Christian and you're thinking, I'm not sure that God exists... And that's something I'm thinking about. This actually might be the one theological truth that you've already personally actually experienced, actually existentially encountered. 
And this is what I mean by that, because if you've ever stood in Yosemite Valley or on the edge of the Pacific Ocean or at the top of a mountain or stared into a clear night sky and you felt this thing called gratitude. Not just awe, awe is one thing, but you felt this thing called gratitude. Gratitude is an interpersonal feeling. That means you actually can only experience if there's someone to be grateful to. You felt gratitude because you're experiencing Jesus sharing the beauty of his world with you. What, what does it mean for us then that he's our, he's our creator and sustainer? He means, it means that he's our ultimate authority. The one who has the final word over you, the one who actually does have a right to have say over everything you touch and use, both within you and outside of you. The world is made by Him and for Him. He's the final authority over all of our life. And listen, this is good news, right? Oh, authority of Jesus, authority of God. Maybe you buckle at that at first, but listen, wait for a second. First of all, we all submit to an authority. Secondly, Jesus hates when people misuse authority. He confronts religious leaders for doing it, for lording it over the people and laying burdens on them, for leading and motivating people with fear and judgment. Yo, Stanford is an authority you submit to. Here's my question. Does it motivate with fear or does it motivate you with freedom and love? Your parents, your friends, your authority is the thing that you fear to disobey or disappoint. Everybody's got one or many. And you may think, not me. I am my own authority. And you know what? That might be the worst place to be. I don't want to be my own authority because I think for most of us, your experience is probably similar to mine. I think I'm meaner to me than anyone else is. And we've all stared in either your metaphorical or allegorical mirror or maybe your physical mirror and you've spoken authoritative words to yourself. Fat, ugly, failure, loser, no one likes you, hypocrite, reject. We've all gotten those words from our own authoritative voice. We need a better authority than even ourselves. It is good news that Jesus has the final word over us. He's over all rulers and all schools and all bosses and all friend groups and even your own voice. And it's good news because of how He uses His authority and power. We're going to talk about that in a second, but to get there... Let's talk about why that's hard for us for a second. So we got this dog in the fall who is now named after Alabama's backup quarterback. (laughs) My children did that, not me. Y'all don't believe me, but that's actually the truth. Um, And people who have no idea what I'm talking about are just like, why is he talking about that? Sorry. His name is Jalen. That's Alabama's backup quarterback. Um, He's not real bright. Um... But here's the thing. Jalen's mine. I own him. I paid for him. Uh, Now here's the question. Sometimes he knows that he's mine, and sometimes he doesn't. Does his personal awareness that he is mine affect the actual reality that he is mine? No. However, when he doesn't know or experience or acknowledge that I am his master, what does it do? It makes being mine much more unpleasant for both of us. Right? Because he's mine, but now we're alienated. 
He doesn't recognize that he's mine, and so the patterns of respect and love with which we're intended to relate are broken. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the authority over all things, whether or not you would acknowledge it. In Philippians 2 and all throughout Scripture, Paul repeats, At the name of Jesus, every knee eventually will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it is good news. It is the news you've always longed for, that Jesus is the true and final authority, and the true and final glory, and the true and final power. And it will bring joy, experiential, you get to be happy tomorrow joy, real stuff. When you come into that realization as you look and understand how He uses His power and His supremacy and His glory. How does He use it? Verse 18, the poem takes a shift from celebrating His supremacy and power over all of creation to say this kind of weird stuff. And He is the head body, head of the body, the church. He's the firstborn from the dead so that in Him, uh, so that in everything He might be preeminent. And Paul is shifting into a more specific focus and celebrating the reality that Jesus is not just supreme in creation, but He's supreme in what's called new creation or redemption. He's supreme over the church, the way he, a head rules the body. He's the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is supreme in resurrection. He's supreme over death. Redemption or recreation is God's plan for making all things new, making all the sad things come untrue inside of us, all the sad things in here, and outside of us, all the sad things out there. You look at Jesus' ministry, what does He do? He forgives people. He heals their soul. What else does He do? He feeds them and heals their body. He brings healing to the inside and the outside. Jesus is supreme in redemption as well. The church is the community of God's family that finds their life and faith in the forgiving and restoring grace of Jesus. So he's the life-giving head. Also, he's the life-giving head of the church, not of you individually. That's an important theme in all of Paul's literature. Life in Christ is actually life in the community of Christ. And oftentimes, Christians, you might feel disconnected from Christ, failing to actually connect the dots and what the Bible's clearly taught, that if you don't kind of set your life down into and networked into life in His family, you should never expect, according to the Bible, to feel life in Jesus. The church are those restored by Jesus. But He's also supreme over death. There's nothing He doesn't rule over. He heals our souls He heals our bodies. And now you may think, okay, this is where Christianity is getting silly. It's the pathetic kind of wishful thinking for all the sad stuff in life to go away and all the good to be restored and retained. Listen. Christian or not, the base note that sits at the deepest level of all of your motivations, the thing which everyone in this room, regardless of where you are in your spiritual process or your place in life, the thing that all of us are after, because it's the thing that every human that's ever lived has been after with every fiber and minute of our existence, is getting rid of what we think is the bad and restoring and preserving what we think is the good. That's what we're all after. You can process every decision you've made through that. 
But this is the trouble. Because our hearts are twisted, we try to do it in all sorts of ways that don't work. So we try to drink that reality in existence, or work that reality in existence, or moralize that reality in existence, or legislate it into existence, or exclude people, or numb, or justify, or buy our way out of the sad and into the good. G.K. Chesterton said this, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every Ph.D. class, every C.S. class, every hope in a grade, every delightful meal, every bid, every job offer, every expression of anger. See, these are good and bad things. Every post or like or comment, every study session, every article of clothing you put on and take off. We are all using every ounce of all the power we have to try to make the sad things of our life get away from us and acquire, restore, and retain the good things. We want the power to do it, or we want to be close to someone who has the power to do it. Look at what Jesus does with His power. He makes peace by the blood of His cross. Peace is the biblical word for that longing. that For what everyone's heart has always been searching for, We keep thinking that we can bring ourselves peace by exercising our power, the power that you have. You have willpower. You have technological power. You have intellectual power. You have potential, future power, financial power, political power, moral power, sexual power to get peace. But the problem is twofold. First of all, we don't have enough power. But actually, the even deeper problem is that we use all of our power in the pursuit of me. my happiness. And because all of us are using all of our power in the pursuit of ourselves individually and for our happiness, that's actually the origin of all the sad. And the sad can't go away until that changes. Your fundamental allegiance is to you. My fundamental allegiance is to me. And even the things that we do for others, right? We're like, no, I'm a good person. I do some good things. Even the things we do for others are loaded with a calculation about how we personally benefit. And I can prove it to you right now. Would you go on a service trip if someone told you, hey, it would be really, really helpful for these people, but it will not be rewarding for you at all? You wouldn't go. We have to be told, it's going to be rewarding. You know, you can help people and not be, and not be rewarding, but we won't do it because even our altruism is really just about us too. All of our good is self-absorbed, so actually none of it's good. We're alienated. We're separated from each other because of that, and we're separated from God because of that, by our self-concerned hearts and our self-absorbed uses of power. Here's how Jesus uses His power. He uses it that even while we are enemies with Him, alienated from Him, hostile in mind, He gives up His power doing the one thing none of us would ever do, The one thing that is completely counterintuitive, he reconciles us to God by his death for the purpose of presenting you holy and blameless and above reproach for him. Here's what we've expected, we would have expected, and here's what I think we still expect from God. We actually expect him to be like us. And that's actually why it's so hard to comprehend the glory and the goodness of Jesus. It's actually not because he's irrelevant. It's because his, he uses his power in such a counterintuitive way. He's so good that we actually can't get our minds around it because no one expects mercy. And maybe if you're thinking, oh, maybe I expect mercy a little bit, 
No one expects mercy to enemies. No one expects Jesus to spend his life and expend and give away his power to show mercy to sinners and to prostitutes and to corrupt politicians. No one expects the creator of the universe to do that. Here's what we expect, because this is the pattern we engage in all of our lives individually with each other. If you and I are alienated from each other, if our selfishness causes a relational rift, right, we're upset with each other, and that happens eventually in every relationship, our immediate instinct is, I'm going to use my power, and you're going to use your power to execute justice. And then we have this huge toolkit for doing that. (coughs) Gossip. Argue. Nurse bitterness internally quietly. Cut people off. Ghost. Be passive-aggressive. Exclude. We can patronize. Or we can flat-out attack. Our tools that we use to execute justice are so numerous, and we grab hold of them so instinctually, so quickly, that when Jesus comes along, the reason we can't see His glory is because He does what no one would have expected the Creator to do. He gives up power in the act of forgiveness. And not forgiveness for friends. Forgiveness for people who don't care about Him and are even hostile to Him. Forgiveness is the choice by an aggrieved party, the aggrieved party, the hurt party, the offended party, to suffer the consequences of evil so that the offending party doesn't have to. It doesn't make sense. We don't do it for each other. We would have never expected it from Jesus. It's the decision to lose power in the act of reconciliation instead of use power in the act of punishment. Once you see that all of us naturally use all of our power in our futile pursuit of trying to get rid of the bad and sad and trying to secure and preserve the good, and that the very nature of the fact that we only do it from an ultimately self-seeking posture. And that's actually the reason for our rift between us and the joy-filling presence of God. Once you see His glory is His humiliation and His forgiveness, once you see that He gives up power and the selfless act of forgiveness to restore you to Himself, you'll begin to not only realize, but actually experience. Experience means tomorrow feel the reality that Jesus is all you've ever wanted and all you ever need. And as that truth of His forgiving and gracious love takes up residence in the center of your heart, you will start to also experience the joy and the fullness of using your power in a Christ-like manner. That this thing in your life called friendship, you can use it for others instead of for you. It means you can be friends with all kinds of people simply because they're lonely instead of people like you because they affirm you. Right? You can use your ambition for others instead of your ambition to validate, validate yourself. You can use your schoolwork for others. You can use your kindness for others. Your time for others. Your money for others. You will be free His love produces actually the freedom you've always wanted, but our fears are always forcing us to be selfish. And this is why Paul closes with, so continue in faith, 
in Christ. Don't shift from that focus. Not shifting from the the hope that you have in Him, the hope that came in the good news of the gospel. You are forgiven and you are loved by your Creator King, not because you're good, but because He's good. And that's actually how He's going to start to make you good. Paul's final words are not a threat, they're an encouragement because that's what we need because isn't it easy tomorrow to revert to our old instincts about power and our old instincts about fear? Christians, continue in Christ. If you're not a Christian, the encouragement's no different. Come to Christ. Come and be restored by the love of God. God's glory and His power is not flashing lights and loud noises. It's the humility of His grace and love for you. Let's pray.